in there? Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. podcast video store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about how we can't always trust our eyes. It's the Labor Day weekend, and for most of us, that means summer is pretty much over and we look ahead to fall. And speaking of moving forward, I want to mention a very special episode coming out next week, the weekend of September 8th. We have a full-length episode for one and all based on stories with a certain theme, a theme hinted at with this season's musical theme. Horror, 80s, movies, slashers. Let's just say you'll want to camp out for this episode to enjoy the red, white, and blue horror stories we'll have for you. Intrigued? You should be. But as much as we think about next week, we can't overlook the great tales we have in store for you right now. Are you ready? You should be. So turn down the lights and grab the remote because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a woman who's fallen on hard times. With no obvious way to get out of her situation, she resorts to drastic measures, pawning her mother's wedding ring. But as is often the case when we let go of something precious, regret soon sets in and she wishes she could have it back. But in this tale, shared with us by author M.J. Pack, we learn that when you wish upon a star, sometimes you get more than you bargained for. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Aaron Lillis, and Mick Wingert. So think hard before selling that beloved item, and think even harder before wishing to get it back because you just might meet the patron saint of the lost. I've never been good with money. Mama knew this, teased me about it all the time. But Mama liked her cigarettes too much, and now she's in a box in the ground, so she doesn't tease me about anything anymore. I was 19 when I went into the pawn shop for the first time. Bills were coming due and I'd already taken my extra clothes to the resale shops. It was December. I remember that clearly because the utility company had already threatened to shut off my heat once or twice, but this was the first time I was really scared about it. All I needed was a few more shifts at the bar to make the cash, but you know, around the holidays, everyone needs extra cash. So I went through the boxes on my dresser until I found what I was looking for. Mama's wedding ring. I know. I know it's shitty. Your mama dies, you don't pawn her wedding ring. But do you have any idea how cold it gets in Ohio in the winter? Big winter storm was fixing to come through, and I couldn't go without heat. 
You gotta understand. Besides, you get it back, you know? You borrow the money, you pay the interest, you get it back. That was the plan. I walked into the pawn shop, feeling small under the tall shells of old VHS tapes and chipped Disney glasses from McDonald's. Went up to the counter, put Mama's ring down on the glass, and told the lady at the register I needed money. How much? She picked up the ring and looked at it closely. I was hoping you'd make me an offer. I smiled, but she just grabbed a weird little thing that reminded me of mad scientists and scrunched her eye around it. She looked at it closer. Mm, I can do 80. The lady didn't look at me, just kept squinting through that funny thing. 80? 80 dollars for Mama's ring? Felt like a slap in the face. It's worth more than that. It's got three diamonds in it. Nice-sized ones, too. Daddy saved almost a year for this ring back in the day. The lady jerked back from my jabbing finger and looked at me. Really looked at me for the first time since I walked in. Seems like people do that an awful lot these days. Avoid eye contact. I like making eye contact with people. There's more chances to smile. I smiled now. She did too, but hers looked like she felt sorry for me. We don't buy the diamonds, just the gold. The lady paused for a moment then pulled out a little jeweler's scale and set Mama's ring on it delicately. See, if the pawn defaults, we just melt the whole thing down. And what do you do? Just throw the diamonds away? My smile was faltering. I suddenly felt like I'd done the wrong thing in coming here. What kind of place would rip Mama's ring apart and throw away the diamonds? She sort of ignored me and squinted at the numbers on the scale. After a minute, she sighed. Okay. I can do 200, but no more. And you'll have to be in on time to make your payments, okay? My utility bill was 140. What was I supposed to do? Yeah, okay. $200. She took Mama's ring from me and put it in a little plastic bag. I watched as it went into the drawer with other things that once meant so much to people. Probably meant the most until rent came due or a gambling problem reared its ugly head. She handed over ten crisp, clean $20 bills. I said thank you, because Mama always taught me to be polite, even when your heart is breaking. I left with the cash. I paid my bills. My heat stayed on, the winter storm came and went. Eventually I picked up enough shifts at work to make the money back. But every time I thought about handing over all that money at once, I got sick to my stomach. So I made payments instead. Not smart, right? I told you, I'm not so good with money. I kept paying that interest and Mama's ring stayed in that plastic bag until one day I called the pawn shop to let them know I'd be late to make my payment. I explained to the elderly man on the phone that a shift had popped up at work, one I needed to take, but I could pay extra the next day. I gave him my address to look up my account. I'm sorry, your account came due yesterday. Your pawn has defaulted. I'm afraid your item is gone. My stomach plummeted through the floor. I asked him to repeat what he'd said, 
but the words didn't change. I'd forgotten a payment. My pawn had defaulted. Mama's ring, her beautiful three-stone emerald-cut ring Daddy bought for her back when they were young and in love and not bones and boxes under the ground, melted down for scrap. Diamonds in the trash can, for all I knew. I asked him if there was any way to make it stop, to get the ring back before it went wherever it went to get melted. He said no. The guys always came and picked up defaulted items first thing in the morning. I called into my shift at the bar because I couldn't stop crying. I felt so stupid. Mama's ring gone for a lousy $200. She'd always told me I was bad with money, but this was real bad. When I got home, I had a few drinks of McCormick's before going right to bed. Lying there, dozing off under the somehow comforting haze of the whiskey, I thought of a game me and my cousins used to play when we were little, when we wanted to make a wish. We'd go outside, no matter how cold or late it was, and look at the stars. Whoever could count a hundred stars first, well, their wish would come true sure we cheated and counted a lot of the same stars over again, but it still held some sort of magic, whether the wish came true or not. I'm not a little kid anymore, but I closed my eyes, pictured the stars, and tried to count a hundred of them, whispering the numbers like a prayer. I wished not to be so stupid. I wished for Mama's ring to come back. That night, I dreamt of Mama. She was right there at my bedside, stroking my hair so sweet, just like she used to. She kissed the corner of my mouth. She told me I was beautiful. When I woke up the next day, her ring was on the bedside table. I stared at it for a real long time not even daring to move in case it was just a dream and I'd wake up after all. But finally, I got the courage to reach for it. Felt real enough under my fingertips, the diamonds shining so pretty, the yellow gold bright and beautiful. It looked even cleaner than when I last saw it. I hadn't believed since I left the hospital without Mama for the last time, but that morning I got down on my knees and thanked God. Thanks, Jesus. I even thanked St. Anthony. I remembered from my picture book I got for confirmation that he was the patron saint of lost objects. My favorite had always been St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. But I didn't tell Mama that because I knew it would make her sad. It's weird what you remember when so much else just falls away. Anyway, I thank St. Anthony and all the other saints, and even the angels in heaven, because what this was, it was a miracle. I put the ring on my right hand middle finger and swore to myself I'd never lose it again. I'd never pawn another thing in my life because Mama had been back to visit and she'd brought her ring, and chances were if she had to come back again, she wouldn't be so happy with me. I felt so blessed. So carefree. I picked up a shift at the bar and my attitude must have been contagious because I made double my usual tips that night.
The next morning, I reached to the nightstand and felt for Mama's ring. My fingers closed around it, but I felt something else, too. I sat up and looked. There was a real pretty locket next to Mama's ring, a gold heart with what looked like a ruby set in the center. I didn't recognize this necklace. Something about it made me nervous. I quietly put it away in the drawer of my nightstand. I tried to forget it. But they kept coming. Every morning, a new treasure that wasn't mine. A brooch with green glass stones. A little knife with a mother-of-pearl handle. Earrings that dangled what were probably opals at some point, gone milky white with age. Was it Mama? St. Anthony? It didn't seem much like a miracle anymore. It didn't stop until I took a real late shift one night at the bar. We did this special, Dollar Jaeger Bombs, that drew in college kids by the pack. They drank lots and stayed late. One of them threw up in the corner that night, and it took me half an hour to clean it off the floor. So I was getting home late, you know? Usually I got back around midnight, but that time it was almost 2 a.m. I hopped off the bus and started for my apartment when some little voice in my head, one that sounded an awful lot like Mama, whispered, Don't. I stopped on the street, not sure what to do, when I saw it. The window of my second floor apartment. The curtain, it pulled back for just a second, then snapped back closed, like someone had seen me looking. I went straight to the payphone on the corner and called the police. They notified my landlord and I waited, shivering, on the bus stop bench outside while they went upstairs to check it out. I think they thought I was silly, a young dumb girl spooked by the dark, but they had their guns drawn anyway. It wasn't until later I found out that she'd been breaking into my apartment almost every night since December. She used a lockpick kit that had been pawned a while back, and just sat forgotten in their stock. My address, it was easy enough. All she had to do was look up my account. I guess it was sweet, in a scary sort of way. She saved Mama's ring from the melter, but then, you know, she kept going. Brought me other things that had been left behind. The locket the brooch, other pretty little items someone had once loved and let go. She told the police we were lovers, but we weren't. I saw her when I made the payments, that's all. But I guess I smiled at her a lot. I smile at everybody. She smiled at me when they took her away in handcuffs. It was the same smile she gave me the first time she looked up from her work and actually saw the desperate girl in front of her. A stupid, naive girl who was bad with money and needed some fast. It happened a long time ago, but I can't help thinking about her sometimes. Just laying under my bed, waiting with some new treasure clutched in her hands until I fell asleep so she could place it gently on my nightstand stroke my hair, call me beautiful. It's not just things that get lost, you know. 
As they pushed her into the cop car with its swirling red and blue lights, she called out to me. I used to count stars too, and every night I wished for you. So when I lie awake at night, thinking about that woman and what desperation can drive us to, pawn shops and diamond rings and counting stars, I keep coming back to one thing. How did she know what I was counting? Moving to a new location can be difficult. Your surroundings are different and strange. What might be familiar to others looks odd and unusual to you. But in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Newman, we're introduced to something that would seem weird no matter how often you see it. Something entirely out of place. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Aaron Lillis, and Graham Rowett. So trust us when we say it's something to be concerned about. It's totally not normal, and it's worth being wary. Because what you're looking at across the street is the clown in the church. I can still remember the first time I saw the clown in the church. I was 14 and my family had moved to a house in the town where my mother had grown up. Across from our house was an old church, and through one of the side windows, I saw it. A clown. Now, when I say clown, I don't mean some weird dude dressed up hiding out somewhere waiting to scare any passerby. No, it was one of those animatronic ones people put out around Halloween. I couldn't make out any of its features because I was at a distance to start with, but from where I was standing I could tell it was fake. My mom saw what I was looking at as we both stood next to the car parked in our driveway. You know, when I was a little girl that was the church I went to with grandpa and grandma. Why is that clown in there? Who knows? (laughs) Probably just forgot it in there after Halloween. Somebody playing a dumb joke. Come on, help me take these things in. We finished unloading the car, being joined by my older brother Steve, who had gone in ahead of us. Now I love my brother, but he could be a real dick. It wasn't long before he spotted the clown as well, and laid into me. Ooh, he's been waiting for you, Mark. He'll come when you're asleep. He raised his arms in an attempt to frighten me. It didn't work. At least... That's what I told myself at the time. Asshole. Mark? I swear, the woman had superhuman hearing. Later we had takeout for dinner, and I got to bed. School was already starting the next day, and I was tired from the drive and unpacking so far. When I got home from school the next day, I was alone at the time. Mom wasn't back from work yet, and Steve was nowhere to be found. I was about to let myself in when I looked back over at the church. The clown was still there, but it wasn't where it had been the day before. It was standing in front of the middle window now. It had moved. 
I walked across the street and got a better look at the clown. Still to this day, I don't know what compelled me to do it. Plain curiosity, I suppose. I couldn't help but remember my brother's words from the other day. He's going to get you, Mark. It was evident the church had been through some rough times. Its white paint was faded, dirty, and chipped off everywhere. The three arched windows that were facing me all looked neglected and like they hadn't been cleaned in years. The inside had been hollowed out with no pews or any other furniture remaining. Then I peered closer at the clown. It was about my height, 5'7 or 5'8, with a suit of alternating red and white stripes that shined like silk in the daylight. It wore a white boa around its neck and three large red pom-poms in front and massive ruby-red shoes on its feet. Its face and hands were gray and looked like they'd been fashioned out of molding clay with bumps and wrinkles all over. Its scraggly red hair exploded out the back of its head except where it was bald on top. And it had a piercing stare to its jaundiced eyes, like it looked right into my soul. It stared and smiled with its mouth full of teeth. It wore a sign on its chest with words that looked like they'd been written in red marker. The words were, Hug me. A single thought went through my mind at that moment. Why the hell would anybody leave this in a church? I had had enough exploration for the day and walked back home, not even looking back once. I spent the rest of the day watching TV and doing what little homework I had. Mom got home not long after, and so did Steve. I tried not to think about the clown that night, but even as my eyes started to feel heavy, its repulsiveness swelled in my mind. The next day, while I was waiting for the bus to pick me up, I stole a glance over at the church. The clown had moved again. This time, it was in the window closest to the front door. It had to have been Steve doing it. It was just like that asshole. Soon the bus arrived and I sat in a random seat, staring out of the window at the church. At the clown. I spent most of the day at school distracted, and I was pissed at Steve. Later on, I was waiting for Steve when he got home. Mom had picked him up. So you think you're so funny, huh? You and your stupid friends. I don't know what the hell you're talking about, weirdo. I'm talking about the damn clown. You keep moving it, trying to scare me. I pointed towards the living room window in the direction of the church. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I don't know what's going on, but it just needs to stop. You both are getting too old for this. She pointed at Steve as he continued to profess his innocence, and soon after he made his way upstairs. I could feel tears forming in my eyes at that point, mostly out of anger and frustration. But Mom didn't want to hear about it. It's just a stupid clown. Now go get cleaned up for dinner. The next few days passed without any extra excitement. School went by quickly, and I'm guessing my mom must have talked to Steve because the clown hadn't moved anymore. 
It wasn't until Friday after school that I noticed something was different again. I had gotten off the bus as usual when I did what now had become routine for me. I looked over at the church and I saw the clown, still in the same window. But even from the edge of my driveway, I could tell something had changed. I cautiously walked over and as I got closer, the differences stood out even more. It looked a full foot taller, maybe more so. It's once normal legs now looking like stilts. And its arms and fingers look like they'd grown with its wrists and knuckles bent at odd angles. But its face was the worst part. Its eyes looked wider and teeth more knife-like and pronounced. My subconscious brain was picking up all of it. It looked meaner. A very real chill ran down my spine and I turned with haste to make my way back home, never looking back once even as I slammed and locked our front door shut behind me. I decided to stay up that night and watch the church, watch the clown. If my brother was pulling off some elaborate prank to mess with me, then I had to know. I had to catch him in the act. I faked going to bed and sat down quietly by my window. Even in the dim lighting of the night, I could still make out the shape of the clown. I knew Steve was already in his room, and that Mom would soon retire for the night after a glass of wine and some bad sitcom TV. All I had to do was wait it out. I don't know what time I had fallen asleep. Nor did I remember laying down on the floor up against my bedroom wall. I woke up slowly with my head in a semi-daze, and I instinctively peered out of the window. It took me a few moments to focus, but then I saw something that immediately sent me into panic mode. The front door of the church was open, and the clown was nowhere to be seen. I froze. The steps that led to our upstairs did creak, albeit not enough to wake someone up if you knew where to step. My first thought was maybe my mom had stayed up late and was finally making her way up. I hadn't checked the actual time yet. Someone was coming up the stairs. Then I heard another sound that made me question who it actually was. The noise was like fingers being lightly dragged slowly along the wall. And they were close, right on the other side of my bedroom. I pressed my ear to the wall as silently as I could to hear better. I could still hear footsteps, heavy but yet somehow eerily quiet in the dead of night. Somebody was trying very carefully not to be heard. Not Mom. Steve. And then the footsteps stopped. I sat, ear still pressed to the wall. What is he doing? I sat there on the floor my gaze now focused and eyes better adapted to the darkness. I could clearly see the knob being turned and my bedroom door being inched open. 
I could make out the horrible, wretched face of the clown peeking in at me. I did the only thing my body would allow me. I screamed. Mom! The next few moments were a frenzy of activity. My mom's bedroom door flew open at the same time my bedroom light was flipped on. In the flood of light, I saw the clown. Oh, I saw a clown mask on top of a Metallica t-shirt. And then Steve took the mask off and erupted into laughter like I've never heard before. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you should have seen your face. <laughs> Mom barged in behind him. She glared at him with an intensity I'd only witnessed a couple of times before. What the hell is going on? Steven! <laughs> what? It was a joke! <laughs> Look at his face! He practically shit himself! <laughs> Get out and go to bed! We'll talk about this tomorrow and whether I'm going to ground you for life or not. Steve walked out, his laughter silenced with the clown mask hanging limp from his hand. My mom didn't say anything else to me except to go to bed and then closed my door. I distinctly remember standing there in place for a while as the house again went silent. I looked out of the window one more time before surrendering to my bed. The church door was still open, swaying in the nighttime wind. The clown was nowhere to be seen. After that night, I never saw the clown again. As time went on, I eventually accepted the fact that the whole thing had been a trick by my brother and one or two of his friends. The more I thought about it, the more it seemed silly to me, being so afraid of something that couldn't possibly have hurt me. But still, I was always a little skittish around any clowns, whether they were human or robotic. I secretly dreaded when Halloween came around despite my attempts to appear otherwise enthusiastic. Over the years, it became kind of a running joke in my family. That was at least until I got a call from Steve yesterday. He didn't sound like his usual happy self. Sometimes he'd call asking me for money, but one way or another he'd always manage to bring up the clown incident like it had just happened yesterday. But not this time. This time, he sounded downright spooked. This time, he went right into bringing up the clown. Hey, bro. You, you remember that whole clown thing from years back? Yeah. It's getting kind of old, don't you think? Well, it's just there was something about that night I never told you before. Never told me what? That night, after you and Mom went back to bed, I snuck back out over to the bathroom. I could have sworn I saw something move ahead of me before I came into your room. There was silence from his end. I could sense this was hard for him to talk about, but I had to know. What was it? It was hard to see because it was dark and I had the mask on already. But I swear I saw someone go into the bathroom. I thought maybe it was Mom, but the bathroom light never went on and I never heard the door shut. I had the phone pressed so hard into my ear it hurt, my heart starting to race in my chest. 
What he said next made my chest feel heavy. So I went back later and checked. The bathroom window had been opened, and when I turned the light on, I... I saw something on the floor. There was another moment of silence before he spoke. It was a red pom-pom. It couldn't be. Why are you telling me this now? I... I saw it last night. In the alley behind my apartment. It was just standing there. God, it looked eight feet tall. And it was wearing a sign. No. It said, Hug me. Mental health facilities are often the settings for horror stories. Tales of sinister asylums and the howling of the criminally insane. But what we often forget is that the people receiving treatment in these facilities are sick, troubled individuals who need help, not stigma. In this tale, shared with us by author Kenneth Cole, we meet a man who has a lot of sympathy for the individuals incarcerated in the facility he works at. But after becoming a counselor, he finds himself intrigued by a forbidden door within the building. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert, Graham Rowett, and Nicole Doolin. So let's do some outreach and exhibit care in the community while we spare a thought for the unfortunate souls who are a part of the Montford Experiment. My name is Jim Hutchison. Most people call me Hutch, even in my professional life. My family owned businesses as a concrete contractor, and we perform work for a variety of private and federal clients. One such client is the Texas State Department of Corrections. It was work at one of their detention centers that got me interested in volunteering at a facility. About five years back, we were installing a parking lot at the Montford Adult Correctional Institute in Lubbock. It's also known by its more appropriate name, the Montford Psychiatric Unit, as all the inmates have been diagnosed with some type of mental disorder or other. As my men were doing the preparation, concrete placement, and finishing over a number of weeks, I used to watch people walking in and out of the front doors of the facility. It was depressing. Always the same scene. There would be inmates in orange and white striped jumpsuits, trustees, outside the door, sweeping the front steps and picking up trash, cigarette butts, gum wrappers, etc. But mostly sweeping. Always sweeping. All day long. Must have been the cleanest set of stairs in all of Texas. I supposed it was a treat for them, though. After exhibiting good behavior for a while, they were actually allowed outside the unit. I've seen the conditions inside, and boy, I would not want to be locked up in there for too long. Still, the looks on their faces, blank stares, slack jaws, sweating in the 100-degree sun, as I said, very depressing. I had a lot of experience with mental disorders, being diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder, and being a recovering alcoholic. 
I'd found help and comfort through proper medical care and support groups. And I wished there was some way I could pass that on to these poor men. Then one day, I discovered how I could. The guards at the front desk came to know me and some of my supervisory crew. They didn't mind if we occasionally came inside the lobby to get out of the summer sun and use the restrooms or buy a soda from one of the machines in the waiting room. I was sitting in a chair one day holding a cold bottle of Big Red to my forehead when I overheard two women talking nearby. They were well-dressed and obviously not there as visitors. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but the few words I heard caught my attention. Apparently, they were volunteers at the prison, bringing the word of the Lord to the inmates confined inside. I told them how much I admired their work and how I had a desire to help in a similar way. And so they suggested I apply for a position as a pastoral counselor in the unit. Long story short, I did just that. I had to go through some training, what I could and could not bring into the facility, what I could and could not say to the inmates, never share personal information or build friendships, and how to act when inside general population, walking and talking amongst the convicts. It was all pretty much common sense. For the first eight weeks or so, I had to be escorted in and out of the unit proper. I would arrive, place my boots, keys, wallet, and such on a conveyor belt, turn over my briefcase for inspection, and walk through a metal detector. Then, one of the guards at the entrance to general population would call up to the counselor's office, and someone would come down to get me. During the eight weeks, I was fingerprinted, interviewed, and a federal background check was run on me. Eventually, I was given a badge of my own and no longer needed an escort. I learned many things in my first few months of volunteering. Bibles were like currency to the inmates, reading material to overcome boredom. Pencils were not allowed in the cell blocks, so the men loved meeting with me to write journals. They spent most of their time doodling ideas for tattoos. The really sick ones, the mentals as the guards cruelly referred to them, were not allowed into general pop and looked forward to my visits. Most of all, I learned how easy it was to get things in and out of prison. Not that I ever would have done it, but I marveled at the fact that given the right inclination, a body could make a mint smuggling in cigarettes or booze stuffed into their socks. I followed the same ritual every evening that I visited. I would park in the lot, walk past the trustees who swept the front steps, and wow, did they ever stink, and enter the facility. The guards got to know me and grew comfortable with my visits. They began waving me through the detector without having me remove my boots or open my briefcase and eventually started letting me avoid the security check altogether. Next, I was allowed to bypass the desk and go directly behind to a filing cabinet where I could retrieve my badge. I wasn't permitted to take it outside the prison. Then I'd get buzzed through an unremarkable metal door and walk down a long, unadorned hallway. At the end of the hall was where the genuine security measures began. The hallway terminated at another door, this one made of double layers of thick, cloudy, bulletproof glass supported within a frame of four-inch by four-inch square steel tubes. I would approach and stand under a camera mounted above the door, lifting both my face and the badge toward the camera in order for the guards inside to verify my identity. Once done, the door would slide open allowing me to step inside an airlock of sorts. Then the door would slide shut behind me. The compartment was a triangular room with three doors, all similar, 
and a window set into the side. The guards in control of the door sat behind the window and would control the doors opening only one at a time. I came to call them doors number one, two, and three, sort of like the game show Let's Make a Deal. I was entered through door number one, and then I was allowed to pass through door number two into the prison's general population. From the start, I would always gaze at door number three and wonder what was behind it, as it was the only door with darkened glass. Since no more than one door was ever open at a time, I never got to peek inside. During my orientation, I was told the prison's infirmary was back there. When door number two opened, the stench was overpowering. No matter how many times you'd enter that block, you'd never get used to it. Mostly, it was the reek of urine, but it was accompanied by an underlying sweet citrus smell as a result of the cleaning fluid they would ineffectively use to mop down the halls. Inmates assembled up and down the halls, always giving you the once-over with their eyes. Occasionally, they would lock eyes with you and try to stare you down. During orientation, we were told never to look away, to stare them down as you would a stray dog. Looking away would be a sign of weakness. It may seem cruel, but you had to keep them beat down. You had to constantly remind them that you were in charge and that they were nothing. Anything less could lead to unrest and rebellion, and you couldn't have that. The mentals were up on the ninth floor. The elevators, like the doorways, were controlled by the guards and monitored by cameras. I would press a single wall button and eventually the doors would open. I'd step inside, look at the camera, and speak my destination to the camera microphone. Sometimes there'd be an inmate or two in the elevator. I never stood with my back to them. I would always stand facing them, my back to the door, staring them down. And for the most part, they would lower their eyes to the floor and try not to look at me. I was instructed never to enter an elevator if it was occupied by an inmate that intimidated me, but I never backed down. At first, I acted brave because I was unsettled, but didn't want to show it. After a while, I felt sympathy for the men more so than fear of them. The ninth floor was divided up into five pods, each containing five double occupancy cells. My habit was to rotate which pod I would visit on a daily basis, taking the weekends off. Even though I was educated not to make friends with the prisoners, I have to admit that I looked forward to the visits as much as they did. Sometimes heavily medicated and by far the calmest group of men in the facility, they were, save for a few odd ducks, among the nicest people I've ever met. So it was, day after day, week after week, month after month, that I would follow the same routine. There were occasional variances on some days due to fights or unrest among the inmates and general population. One thing never changed. Every day as I entered the block, I would look over at door number three and wonder what lay behind it. I asked a few times and was told, the infirmary. After a while, stop asking for fear that somebody might become suspicious about why I cared so much. Truth was, I'm just a curious person. But I was told, with great firmness, that my request would be impossible to fulfill and that I should let the issue drop. I could almost hear the implied, or else. That just piqued my curiosity even more. My interest grew and grew until one day I decided that I was gonna visit the infirmary one way or another. Although my decision was made on Tuesday, I didn't act immediately. 
I became more attentive to which guards were working on each day and at each time. Certain ones were more lax or friendlier. It took two weeks of studying them and building my confidence until I decided that it was time to act. Exactly two weeks and one day from the Tuesday that I made my decision, I finally got up the courage to say, I'm visiting the infirmary today. In my mind, I thought, let's see what's behind door number three, Monty. The guard never even batted an eye. Gave me a nod, twinkling his fingers as his eyes dropped back to the video screens in front of him. That easily, the door slid open. Boy, if the stench in general pop was bad, odor wafting through door number three must have been quite literally a hundred times worse. In the hot Texas sun, with all of the turkey vultures, roadkill never lasted very long in Lubbock. Every once in a while, though, you'd come across a fresh one. That's the closest thing I could think of to describe the smell behind door number three. It was as if you picked up a day-old dead armadillo, buried your nose in its crushed belly, and took a deep breath. Well, what I imagined that would smell like, I'd never done that. Definitely the smell of rotting meat and gangrene, though. The door slid shut, and another long hall was revealed. Dimly lit with flickering fluorescence, it was like something straight out of a horror movie. I soon found out that it was an extremely appropriate description. Another door at the end of the hall hung loosely from its frame, allowing light to leak out around it. I could hear alternating moaning, crying, and the worst screaming coming from behind that door. I could have, should have, turned around and headed back for the exit, but I had gotten too far. The only way to go was forward. Forward and through that door. Although I knew it would seem suspicious, I opened the door slowly and stuck my head around the corner. The best way to seem as if you belong somewhere is to stride right in with confidence, but I, I couldn't. I was afraid of what might be behind the door. Heck, I thought it most likely was just a prison hospital. Moaning, crying, screaming, all normal noises for men in pain. It was most definitely not a normal hospital ward. There were at least a dozen men strapped to the steel tables. Some naked, some in orange prison jumpsuits, and some wearing the striped suits like the trustees that I passed every day outside on the stairs. All of them had IVs inserted into their arms, drip bags containing a fluid that looked like antifreeze. Vital signs monitors, VSMs, were attached to most of them. There were two men and a woman, all wearing lab coats, standing amongst the tables. One of the male doctors looked up in surprise and beckoned over. Come in, come in. They must have noticed the look of confusion quickly turning to panic in my eyes. The female doctor began explaining in a soothing voice. Don't worry. You're not the first outsider to stumble his way into our infirmary, and I'm certain that you won't be the last. As you've probably already guessed, what we have here is more of a lab than a hospital. We've just become so used to calling at the infirmary that it's simpler that way. It's happening. Everyone, myself included, turned toward one of the tables that held a dead man. Well, previously held a dead man, to be exact. His VSM had jumped to life, and seemingly so had he. He began twitching and then thrashing. He began to scream. I'd seen a man being burned alive once when a barrel of hot tar accidentally spilled on him. And the screaming was the same. 
It was gut-wrenching and it made my skin crawl. You could hear the pain and sorrow in it. The female doctor scrambled to inject a syringe of some milky liquid into the man's IV port, and after what seemed like an eternity, although it was probably mere seconds, he calmed and his breathing steadied itself. Here's the thing. They hadn't been performing CPR on the man when I walked in. There was no defibrillator to be seen. The man was unmistakably dead when I arrived and during the few minutes we had been talking. Here he was alive once again, as if he had spontaneously resurrected. Disturbingly, though, his eyes were still clouded over as if he had cataracts. An uneasy and sick feeling crept its way into my belly. The doctors hadn't told me anything yet, but on some level I already knew what was happening. Or at least, part of it. Huh? What's going on? So while two of the doctors tended to the resurrected man, a third explained the experiment to me. You see, we were tasked to find out whether or not these so-called evil men have souls or not. Of course, I personally don't think that there's any such thing as true evil, but I do wonder if these malcontents have the same sort of spiritual makeup as normal people. After all, why do they do what they do? In 1907, a Haverhill, Massachusetts doctor by the name of Duncan McDougall managed, apparently overcoming any ethical reservations over human experimentation, to put six dying people on a bed equipped with sensitive springs and claimed to have observed a sudden loss of weight, about three quarters of an ounce, at the exact moment of their death, having reasoned that such loss could not be explained by bowel movements or evaporation, he concluded he must have measured the weight of the soul. A follow-up experiment also showed that dogs didn't seem to suffer the same sort of loss, therefore they didn't have souls. I'm not implying that these inmates are the equivalent of dogs, but one must wonder exactly how they compare to normal, healthy human beings. We obviously don't have much control data, but we have recycled these men as much as possible for our research. Recycled? Oh yes, we don't just throw them away. You see, as a pleasing consequence of our intended experiment, we found that we were able to revive our test subjects. Revive them? Yes, revive, resurrect, bring them back, whatever you wish to call it. This way, we're able to take measurements and observe through a variety of different conditions. It's quite ingenious. So, do they have souls? You know, I'm quite certain that they do. As I said, we lack enough data to use as a control. However, it seems that each time we bring them back, they lose a little until, it seems, it's all gone. After a certain point, we can no longer observe any differences. And how long does that take? Usually four or five cycles. I cocked my head, still in disbelief over the casual way he was talking about the atrocities they were committing. And what happens then? I'm sorry, I don't follow you. After you're done with them, what happens to them then? Yes, that's the problem, isn't it? That's currently the little snag we've run into. You see, eventually, they just stop dying. He must have seen the look on my face. I mean, it's not as if we haven't tried. We usually put them down in a most humane way. Sedation, paralysis, and eventually with an injection of enough potassium to stop their hearts. Then we revive them and do it again. And again and again. Each time it gets a little more difficult to put them down until... Well, until we just can't do it anymore. What? 
In simpler terms, they are basically incapable of dying. Quite a problem. And they really start to stink. Can't, can't you burn them? Cremate the bodies? Oh, now that would be cruel. I held my head in my hands and began to hyperventilate. So, where are they? Well, outside, sweeping the steps. With that, I began to feel lightheaded. What caused me to faint, though, was his next question. Mr. Um... He looked at my badge, then into my eyes. Hutchison, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Do you believe that you have a soul? Going a bit overboard on a night out drinking can be easy to do. Most of us have been there, waking up with regrets of the night before. Maybe you're faced with the shame of having danced topless on a table, or perhaps you're forced to live with a crushing headache for the rest of the day. But in this tale, shared with us by author Callum McKelvey, we meet a man for whom the after effects of a night's boozing are altogether more terrifying. Performing this tale is David Alt. So come with us on a journey through this man's life as we discover what haunts him, as we find out what can be seen in the corner of my eye. I only see it when I close my eyes. A figure in the dark, a shape, human but not human, the body too big, the arms too spindly, the head twisted and grinning, the writhing, bloated mass contorting and bending as it slithers towards me, until I open my eyes again. I was 18 when I first saw it, a fresher at uni studying biology. A well-to-do boy from a well-to-do family, naturally at one of the top universities in the country. My father expected <laughs> great things. <sighs> what he would have said if he could have seen me that morning, though. I'd been on a bender the night before, drank till I nearly dropped, then gone home with some guy. <sighs> it doesn't matter who he was. It didn't matter that morning, and it doesn't matter now. He was a fuck, and that was all I needed. Funny. People usually judge me when I say that. That a well-to-do, preppy, and polite young man like me shouldn't want to fuck like everybody else. <laughs> they should have seen me that year. It was early. He was still asleep, but I was too hungover to join him, and I lay staring at the ceiling. My head and body ached. My skin marked with the scars of passion. He snored lazily and spittle dribbled from between his lips. He'd looked good after the seven tequila shots, Jaeger bombs, and three mojitos. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to throw up. I'd sneak out. That's what I do. If I saw him on campus, I could ignore him. In a moment, though, first I needed to doze. Rest a moment. Close my eyes. I could feel the dark engulfing me in its warm embrace. I fell into it, bathed in it. 
watched as the light of the sun streaming through his hall's window made strange, purple shapes beneath my eyelids. They shifted and danced, flashing and pulsing. I felt my mind begin to slip. Then, like a figure at the end of the hall, I saw it. In the corner of my eye, long arms seemed to pull itself through the dark towards me. The legs, unable to support the bulbous, bloated torso, twitched and jerked as it crawled closer. I opened my eyes. I think I gasped, or swore. Then I closed them again. The thing had gone. Uh, No, no, it was further away again. But coming closer, faster this time, I could begin to see its face. It only had one eye. No, wait. Was it one socket, but hundreds of little white eyes? And two mouths? No. No, the head, it was upside down, twisted around on a broken stump of a neck, the flesh contorted and rolled, covered in scars. Its mouth grinned as it got closer, the teeth yellow and covered in filth, meat, or something caught between them. There wasn't a nose, but two holes where nostrils should have been, dried blood surrounding them. Then the eyes. They were deep sockets with only two small pinpricks of yellow light within them, dancing like tiny flames. My eyes burst open. I was sweating that cold, clammy, gross kind you get when you've had a bit too much to drink, like your body sweating the booze out. Next to me, last night's conquest slept soundly, the mucus-infused spittle making a path along the white of the pillow. For a moment, I lay, my eyes staring up at the damp ceiling. I, I didn't even blink. Endless minutes went by and thoughts with them. Was it a pissed-up hallucination? Just the alcohol playing havoc with my brain? There was a kid in the ear above me. He'd been out with the rugby lads, got catatonic. When he woke, he hadn't stopped screaming for an hour. That was it then. Just the booze. Had to sleep it off, had to close my eyes. Tentatively, I shut my lids and nothing. But no, it was there in the corner. I could see the scars on the neck in detail, how the neck was twisted like a tree stump. The small tufts of white hair on top of the oval skull, the way the bones shone through the pale skin. The tiny lights danced in their empty sockets before the sickeningly long nails lunged from my face. I felt the hot burn as the jagged claw tore through tender flesh and my cheek was ripped open. My eyes shot open, the scream tore itself from the throat. I scrambled over the no longer sleeping form beside me, my knee making contact with his ample stomach and causing a gruff grunt. I cowered by the wardrobe, the warm blood trickling down my face and the wound pulsing with white-hot pain. I spent the morning in the hospital and the afternoon in the university counsellor's office. I could hardly tell the difference between the two. The same bright lights and sterile walls, patronising voices and my parents' anxious tones. 
I was warned of the dangers of binge drinking, of its effect on unforeseen mental health problems and the necessity of talking. I hadn't been depressed. I didn't have a history of mental health. I didn't have any trauma. But, my parents informed me, I went out a lot. I lived an extreme lifestyle, as they put it. Perhaps I was compensating for something, or perhaps it was finally taking its toll. I could see the counsellor and the doctors nodding, latching onto any possible excuse. Neither explained how a boy was able to tear open his cheek like cheap loo roll. <laughs> but I believed it at the time. The lifestyle calmed down, the wounds healed. I studied harder. I lost friends. Shut myself away, determined to succeed. It made no difference. For three weeks later, it came again. I was in the library when it happened, working late. A few of the more dedicated first years and a smattering of MA students were scattered throughout the long hall. The moon hung in the sky. I could hear the laughing cheers of the students leaving the union and heading down to town. I wished I was with them, but I was tired. I'd been working all day and it was beginning to take its toll. I, I briefly considered going home, having some rest, but I had work to do. I had to succeed. Perhaps if I just closed my eyes for a moment, I felt my eyelids begin to droop. Sweet, comforting darkness consuming me. Then the twisted head pulled itself up as if from nowhere, the tiny sparkling firelights glowing with vicious intensity. Then the filth-ridden teeth came gnashing towards me. It took five of them to drag me into the ambulance. In the hospital, I was subjected to the same speeches. I didn't listen to them this time. I saw them for what they were. You don't bite a chunk out of your arm and not have a drop of blood round your mouth. It was suggested I go home for a while, take a few months off of my course. I never went back. Over the next year, the thing came constantly. Sometimes it would be every night, sometimes it would wait weeks or even months. Often it wouldn't even try and hurt me, just taunt me, laughing and baying with its twisted head. Not letting me close my eyes, not letting me sleep. Just when I thought I'd got used to it, when I thought I could conquer it, it would strike me again. A turning point came when I lost three fingers. I remember the ambulance arriving. The men in white coats obviously expecting trouble. Evidently, they weren't expecting me to walk out wearing my best suit and carrying a packed bag. My mother sobbed as she said goodbye. I tried to act the part, telling her it would all be okay. Naively, I even thought that maybe it would help. In a way, perhaps it did. She never had to see me screaming again. I lost two long years in the institution. Again, the same bright lights and sterile walls, the same patronizing voices. After a year, my parents stopped coming. They either forgot or didn't want to know. I like the former more, but then our fantasies are always much kinder than the reality, aren't they? The doctors informed me that I was a most unusual case, practically unique. 
by all accounts and purposes, I should have been sane. I demonstrated all the normal attributes of a sane individual, and despite my violent hallucinations, I often gave credit to the possibility that, yes, it was all in my head. Until I'd scream, and huge, gory wounds revealed massive chunks of my flesh torn away, as if I'd been savaged by a rottweiler, scarring my body. And that, that was when they dealt. The moment that, for the briefest of seconds, common sense would rule. The moment they'd think, no, there's no way a twenty-something-year-old boy could do that to himself, or... Those teeth marks, they were unusual. But then I'd be passed on to another doctor and never see them again. (laughs) I began to wonder if possibly they knew that maybe, just maybe, the obvious truth was more horrifying than the fantasy. They stopped my friends visiting, stopped them questioning just how an eight-stone slim young man like myself could do the things I was doing. I think they suspected the doctors, and for a while it seemed like there might be an investigation. Then... uh, No. A word in the right ear, and my friends became part of the same slew of voices assuring me it was all in my head. It didn't matter. I wouldn't be there much longer. I don't remember how or when I got away. I may have bribed a guard, I may have convinced him I loved him. They were all quite stupid, so either was a possibility. It all seemed so long ago, the shouting voices as I cowered in the dark undergrowth of the forest, hidden from their dogs and sirens. I'm not really sure how many years went by. After a while, I felt the pressure of the hunt no longer. I managed to forge another identity, a job here, a job there, cash in hand, no questions asked. I went to see my parents, to the house where I grew up, the house where I had all my memories. The for sale sign stood stiffly upright like a hard prick, the rooms empty and hollow, the walls repainted. I broke in and cowered on the floor of my old room as the thing came again. I think I wanted to cry, but I couldn't bring myself to close my eyes. As soon as I had the money, I boarded the boat. The emptiness of the sea pleased me so much that eventually I worked from country to country and bought a small boat of my own. And now, another country, another sky, but always in the dark it waits. I began to forget how long it had been since I slept. Below the equator, the sun sets late and rises early. I was hardly ever in the dark. Out at sea, the stars fill the sky like a million dancing fireflies, and for the first time in a long time, I felt safe in their warm glow. Eventually, though, I'd have to close my eyes. Eventually, it would come again. It always came again. I felt my body begin to wane. The sleeping pills, the endless jugs of coffee, I did whatever I could to stay awake. But I couldn't fight it forever. I couldn't hold back the dark anymore. So it came, slithering out of the darkness towards me. Once I kept my eyes closed, 
willed myself to fight it, to try and hold it off. I screamed and swore, fought it with all the will I could muster. <laughs> There's no hospital at sea. The deck was stained with blood. That was the closest it came to killing me. But it didn't. In fact, I almost think it doesn't want to. After all, what would be its plaything then? Perhaps it's something more that, in a strange way, it needs me. <laughs> Yet while it needs me, it for some reason loathes me too. I got used to those dead, sparkling eyes of its, staring into my soul before the long talons slashed into me. And every time I saw only hate. It hated me, yet it could not kill me. But it could cause me endless pain, endless, relentless pain. Then one day, the answer came. It seemed so obvious. For it to come, I had to close my eyes. Those two fragile pieces of delicate skin were the only thing allowing it into my world. So... Why hadn't I thought of the solution before? I grabbed the knife. The smallest I could find, it should have been a scalpel, but it would have to do. I remember the fear, but also the ecstasy. This would be it. I would finally be rid of it. The knife shook uncontrollably in my hand. How long had it been since I'd slept? I struggled to think. I wasn't thinking. I raised the blade to my eyes. I hadn't even thought of nulling the pain. It sliced through the thin skin. The blood poured down, but I kept going. Maybe that was it, the pain. Or was it the lack of sleep, the fear, perhaps? No. It was the pain. For the briefest of moments, the knife hit a particularly sensitive mound of flesh. A slight gasp, an involuntary spasm. The blade moved down diagonally. The blade slashed across my eyes. It slashed across the retinas. I felt the blood attempted to open my eyes. Then, the horror of realizing they were open. I was blind. I screamed, overcome with the fear, the panic, and then the realization. Now, I'm always in the dark. And it's always here, too. In our final tale, we join a group of friends heading into a valley in Canada with a bit of a reputation. Over the years, this place has been the site of all manner of rumors, from giants and evil spirits to aliens and Bigfoot. So perhaps it's not the best place to convince a pilot to take you. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, we discover that rumors usually stem from somewhere. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, Jessica McAvoy, Matthew Bradford, Erica Sanderson, and Jesse Cornett. So don't believe your eyes. 
Keep an eye on the time and make sure you question everything if you find yourself in the Valley of the Headless Men. If you won't take us, we'll just find someone who will. This was a lie for many reasons, and the man standing in front of me seemed to know it. There were only two other pilots flying people into the valley. If he refused my demand, my options were cut by one-third. His ice-blue eyes, half-lidded with disinterest, locked onto mine. I retreated the step without having realized it and fixed my gaze upon the amber shot glass in my hand. The pilot looked to my friends at the bar as they relieved themselves of their newly acquired Canadian dollars in exchange for another round. His eyebrows, wild and multi-toned like lichen on a tree branch, twitched, betraying his annoyance. We were living up to every stereotype of traveling Americans. You really want to go? His lips curled around each consonant so that his sneer never wavered. I do. Why? I didn't have a simple answer to that question. Perhaps it was just the name, so seductive to my teenage mind when I discovered the legends years ago. My instincts told me Pilot Bob, as he introduced himself, would not be entertained by my story. It wasn't really a story at all. It was an obsession. To see something I've never seen before. His cheeks were perpetually red from exposure to sunlight reflected off of snow. When he smiled, his face transformed. He could easily have passed for a department store Santa Claus. He grasped my shoulder. Son, you may see things you've never dreamed before. He motioned for me to rejoin my friends and accompanied me to the bar. Our arrival was justification for another round of shots, and the bar filled with cheers once again. The Valley of the Headless Men I first encountered it during a late-night internet odyssey while a freshman in high school. Although it was a well-known legend, it seemingly suffered from little embellishment. Each website recounted the same compact story. The Nahani Valley, as the region is labeled on the map, is a remote wilderness in Canada's Northwest Territories. Evidence of habitation dates back 10,000 years though this was sporadic. The tribes recounted legends of evil spirits and strange creatures. The Dene, whose territory bordered what would eventually be named Nahani Valley, recounted massacres at the hands of giant men. These Naha warriors, it was said, decapitated their enemies and vanished into the wild, rugged expanse. Although the region is mostly unexplored, no evidence has been discovered supporting the existence of giants. Despite its northerly climb and isolated pockets, the hot springs of the Nahani River support nearly tropical vegetation. It is a virgin land of staggering vistas, roaring rapids, and a waterfall that dwarfs Niagara. Some say it boasts all of Canada's natural beauty in one place. 
And as recently as the 1900s, trappers and prospectors died in this far-flung Canadian wilderness, their heads cleanly severed. These grisly discoveries tapered off in the 1940s, which is not to say the massacre subsided. An average of one soul a year enters the park, which is only accessible via plane, and never leaves. I entranced my high school friends with descriptions of the valley. It became a sort of touchstone for our group. After nights of passing around a lukewarm bottle of beer liberated from my dad's mini-fridge, we would build the lore in our minds. It was the last refuge of Sasquatch, the entrance to the inner earth, or a land forgotten by time itself. Did some remnant of Naha warriors endure the introduction of European diseases? In our senior year of college, we rejected the temptation of South Padre and instead saved our money. Two weeks after the last Among Us received a diploma, we were on our way to Canada. Russell had the height for basketball, but never played competitively. His arms and legs were as thin as reeds, not suitable for any competition that could not be conducted from a couch. He stood next to the bar, shivering despite many layers of clothing, and blew hot breath into his hands. Gabe was his body opposite. He was squat, fair-skinned, and could often be found at the end of a trail of discarded clothing. He draped a bare arm over Pilot Bob's shoulders as the man recounted a story about a mysterious green orb that pursued his plane for half an hour. And then there was Jess. At some point, each of us had fallen in love with her. After nearly a decade as friends, though, she really was just one of us. I no longer felt a twinge in my stomach if she dropped an offhanded comment about a date or a boyfriend. The woman had cupped a fart and disposed of it in my open mouth on more than one occasion. She was the little sister of our group. The bar was only open during the summer months when the meager tourist season was at its apex. Two native women and an elderly native man were in the far corner of the room next to a dance floor the size of a bathroom stall. A Vince Gill song blared through an ancient speaker that might have had a loose wire. The group bobbed their heads appreciatively, but... They were more interested in watching us than listening to the music. So, Pilot Bob, what time are we meeting you tomorrow? <laughs> Russell, now wearing Gabe's discarded jacket, pressed a closed fist into his lips and bolted out the bar. He expelled the contents of his stomach, whiskey and airport food that was several hours old. <laughs> if we're going by his timeline, I would guess about noon. <laughs> Take it easy on him. He just graduated from Smirnoff Ice this year. <laughs> Pilot Bob laughed furiously at Jess's comment, the fit culminating in phlegm-filled coughs. He patted his pockets as mucus trembled on his lips. Gabe removed his shirt. Need a handkerchief? Take this. The sun was up before we were. We peeled ourselves free from woolen blankets and adorned ourselves in layers we could later discard if necessary. 
Pilot Bob mentioned that snow was possible at any time of the year this far north. The forecast for our five-day trip projected intermittent rain with low temperatures in the 40s. The airport was a strip of weather-worn asphalt a couple of blocks from our room. Frosty clouds of exhaled breath trailed behind us like dialogue bubbles in a comic strip. Each of us suffered in varying degrees from the libations of the night before. Russell hadn't spoken a word, seeming to be only capable of walking and massaging his temples. I hope we see a bear. You do know we can all outrun you, right? Gabe stopped and adjusted the straps of his backpack. I have a plan. I'm going to shove a fistful of edibles in its mouth. Pilot Bob stood next to his prop plane and waved grandly as we approached. It was white with a mustard yellow stripe. He seemed to suffer no ill effects from the night before. My American adventurers! My gaze fell upon his silver strip of duct tape on the wing, flapping in the breeze. Pilot Bob slapped me on the back as I eyed it warily. Ah, just decorative. The flight was equal parts terrifying and exhilarating. The constant drone of the plane's engine made conversation next to impossible, and so we quickly abandoned the effort. I pressed my face to the cold glass of the circular window and watched a herd of caribou meander near a glittering river. The buzz of the plane overhead spooked a few dozen who galloped away from the herd. Stubborn patches of snow were visible here and there like little pieces of white lint on a green quilt. There were no cars, no roads. We weren't even in the valley, and it was already everything I hoped it would be. Get close! What Bob and I agreed to the night previous was not that he would take us into the valley, but that he would take us to a remote corner of it. I had a decade of curiosity, and only five days to exercise it. His response was disheartening. I'm not allowed to. After more failed negotiations, I delivered my ultimatum. Bob mentioned seeing a strip of bare earth he thought would be suitable for landing in the northwestern corner of the park. As the plane contacted the ground, it jolted back into the air, springing each of us out of our seats. Pilot Bob laughed, spittle flying as he wrestled the plane to a stop. Russell, Jess, and I panted, our limbs rigid. Gabe woke up from his nap, smacking his lips. Are we there? We unloaded our gear and solidified arrangements with Pilot Bob. Now, if anything happens, you guys are basically shit out of luck. You're 500 miles from civilization and probably at least 50 from the nearest person. There's bound to be some rafters on the river. They fly them in out of another town. If anything happens, I suggest you find the river. Might take you a couple of days, but you'll reach someone eventually. If it's not an emergency, just wait for me. I'll be back here at... Uh... He checked his watch. At 11 o'clock, five days from today. After handshakes, he was back in his plane and skyward bound. We unloaded our gear and hastily assembled the tents. 
As survivalists, we were wholly self-taught, and erecting the tents became a half-hour odyssey. We agreed that, after a day of exploring, the last thing we would want to do was assemble tents. The task complete, we walked away from the tents, our backs heavy with gear, much of it likely unnecessary. I stood at a precipice that descended into the valley, filling my lungs with sweet air that was almost painfully pure. I inhaled the honeyed fragrance of alpine flowers, flashes of red and yellow amid the sea of green. The world spread before me, distant ridges of hidden valleys like open arms. It was a primitive sort of beauty, and that particular view was one perhaps only a handful of people had ever before seen. Gabe's moon face was beaming. Well, now what do we do? Each of us was affected by the valley in some way. I can't guess what sort of emotions stirred in my friends, but the near-permanent smiles on their faces revealed much. Pan for gold. Catch a fish. Find some mushrooms. Let's get to it. Russell took a careful first step into the valley. Our destination was the stream at the base of the valley. There were no paths to it, and more than once we were forced to turn around when confronted with a steep decline. Minor avalanches of gravel tumbled before us. The descent took half an hour. By the end of it, my palms were cratered with pockmarks and lacerations. We trudged through waist-high grass, the soft earth beneath our feet sucking our hiking boots. Look! We all followed the direction of Jess's pointing finger. A mountain goat stood at the edge of an outcrop of rock. His stunted horns cocked to the side as he watched us. Aren't those usually white? Oh, racist. They are in all the pictures I've seen. The ebony goat considered us for a further few seconds, and then disappeared. Guess it's like a reverse spirit bear? The stream purled over smooth rocks that reminded me of dinosaur eggs. Despite the water's movement, there was an almost oppressive silence. I manipulated my jaw in an effort to pop my ears and witness my friends repeat the exercise. Gabe was the first among us to sample the water, discarding his gear and pressing his lips directly to the stream. Shit, that's cold. Kind of metallic, but refreshing. Gabe drank more as I wiped the water from my chin. So no one's worried about bacteria? Pure water and free diarrhea? What's not to love? We stayed near the stream for a couple of hours. I retrieved my gold panning kit and we each took a turn. Russell found a nugget the size of a lima bean and tucked it into a pouch in his backpack. Jess walked ahead of the group and found a sandy area. We joined her and liberated various snacks from our backpacks. Furry bumblebees the size of my big toe floated past, 
Life near the Arctic Circle was a fleeting thing, a yearly cycle of death and rebirth consolidated into three months. Russell abruptly stood, crackers spilling from his lap. No one else hears that? Hears what? That sound. It's, it's like a box fan right next to my head. Jess, Gabe, and I exchanged confused looks. Russell scratched the back of his neck. I, I was just kidding. He collected his crackers and dusted the sand off, then sat in silence. After lunch, we resumed our exploration of the valley. The staggering vistas purged my mind of all thought. I was an empty vessel, stumbling perpetually forward without an idea in my mind. Russell lagged behind the group. When I turned to check on him, he was often standing still, burying knuckles into his ear canals. You okay, Russ? Of course. Do you think there's actually enough food to sustain a Bigfoot up here? Could hibernate like bears do. Apes are herbivores for the most part, unless an opportunity for easy meat presents itself. And there's plenty to eat here. I wouldn't imagine they're the ones cutting off heads, though. What the fuck was that? We waited, listening for more. But there was only the single scream. A goat? Could it have been the goat we saw? Maybe a bear got it. She began to stroke her mouse-brown ponytail and look to us for confirmation. Only one problem with that. If it was a bear, then that means there's a bear nearby. A well-fed one? I looked to Russell, who removed a finger from his ear and grimaced at the sight of blood. He wiped the blood on his jeans and then noticed I had seen. <laughs> Mosquito. Over the course of the next few hours, we ventured deeper into the valley. There were pockets of trees here and there, flowers in every color. Rumpled gray clouds paraded across the sky, dulling the sun's light. We encountered a bull moose wading in a deeper portion of the stream, his antlers dripping with emerald green leaves. A trio of bald eagles inspected us from their respective perches. We posed for pictures, but there was little laughter. Perhaps the extensive travel coupled with the physical exertion finally caught up to us. We walked in a silence, occasionally disturbed by the sound of someone slapping a mosquito. The little bastards were voracious and seemed not at all put off by the insect repellent we showered ourselves with. I looked at my watch. Probably time to turn around. Russell was behind the group by twenty or so paces. He wiped his hands on his jeans and I noticed the area around his pocket was stained with crimson. Jess had drifted away and appeared startled when I spoke almost as if she was sleepwalking. Gabe nodded in agreement, but said nothing. He opened and closed his mouth as if still affected by the change in air pressure from the flight hours ago. 
Night's only four hours long at this time of the year. Actually a lot later than it seems. Jess, in her traffic cone orange parka, stood in a field of flowers and stared up at the sky. It's so beautiful here. I suppose I should have noticed the change in my friends, but I can't say I was in a proper headspace myself. I hardly thought of anything at all. More than once, however, I turned toward the sound of my name and discovered that no one in my group had uttered it. We spoke little, but I attributed this to the breathtaking scenery. Jess was determined to experience the valley on her own terms, slogging through more challenging terrain 50 feet away from us. Russell, now leading the group as we had turned around, cupped his hands over his ears and said nothing. Gabe giggled a lot, but that might have been the edibles. Jess suggested we cross the stream at a shallow point. Let's see what things look like on the other side. We obliged in an area of the stream where a log, stripped of most of its branches, had become wedged between nearly boulder-sized stones. Russell nearly lost his balance as he scratched furiously at his left ear while crossing, but we all managed to assemble on the other side. Are we okay, guys? Jess nodded, but scanned the meadow ahead and seemed anxious to depart in that direction. Regretting not having second breakfast. <laughs> Gabe giggled into his fist as Russell wiped more blood on the hips of his jeans. Oh, fucking mosquitoes. I wanted to ask if anyone had called my name, but held my tongue and gestured for my friends to continue. The ground was softer on the opposite bank. We found a cluster of wolf paw prints in a muddy area as well as a sun-bleached femur from an unknown animal of tremendous size. Jess tracked a couple hundred feet ahead of us and her pace quickened. Within an hour, I had to strain my eyes to pick out her parka from the surrounding green. I surveyed the patches of pine and readied myself to sprint if I saw anything emerge from the foliage. Not that my presence would have affected her fate if a grizzly bear or wolf attacked. Derek. What? I turned to Gabe, who trudged through the mud a few feet to my left. Huh? You didn't say my name? Gabe frowned and twirled his barn red beard. Hey guys, get over here! Gabe and I both attempted to sprint, but the effort was thwarted by the mud. It wasn't immediately apparent what was the nature of Jess's outburst. Within about 20 seconds, we saw that she was jumping up and down, beckoning us with a windmill motion. Hurry! Gabe collapsed upon arrival, his chest heaving. He smiled, appearing to enjoy the pain. I looked over my shoulder and saw Russell plodding along with his hands cupped over his ears. Look what I found! It was a battery-powered AM-FM radio that was very much a relic of the 1980s. There were faux wooden slats across the front and a cracked black plastic carrying handle. What is it doing out here? Don't know. But I knew if we walked on this side of the water, I would find something. Jess's eyes were wide and slightly wild. She plucked off her gloves. 
You don't think. She twisted a knob and the radio fizzled to life. There's no way this should be receiving a signal. Jess held a finger up. Three, seven, four, one, five. Three, seven, four, one, five. Three, seven, four, one, five. Six, six, four, seven, five. Six, six, four, seven, five. Holy shit. I ripped my beanie off of my head and ran my hands through my hair as the pattern continued to play from the radio, fizzling and popping at times. I stared at the canopy of gauzy gray clouds overhead, searching for the sun. It was impossible to place. It's a numbers station. What? I hadn't realized Russell was there. I noticed he wore earmuffs over his beanie. Anyone's guess what they're for, but most believe it's governments communicating with agents in the field. They've been around for a while. If you believe the conspiracy sites, they could be responsible for political assassinations. An agent might have a cipher of some sort that corresponds to the numbers. Impossible to crack if the agent is the only person with the cipher. We're almost in the Arctic Circle. How is this picking up a signal? Well, typically you'd use a shortwave. AM travels far, a couple hundred miles under ideal conditions. But I don't know how it's picking it up. We crossed the stream again. Just held the radio in her arms as if it was an infant. I quickly grew tired of hearing the English woman's voice, as well as the calliope music, and asked her to turn the volume down. Rather than honor the request, she jogged ahead of the group. Derek. It was impossible to know if the voice calling my name originated from anywhere other than inside my head. Suppressing the urge to respond was like denying a reflex. I allowed Gabe and Russell to track a few feet ahead. They were talking and joking again, which brought me some relief. Conversation throughout the day had been sporadic, and I had begun to wonder if some of the wilder theories about the valley might be true. Yes? Derek, you are so close. So very close. But you're walking in the wrong direction. I stopped and pivoted, scanning the clusters of trees nearest to me. Pine needles trembled in a light breeze, but otherwise all was still. So close to what? To the answers. The answers to all your questions. What questions? But the voice did not speak again that day. We neared our point of entry, and Gabe was the first to notice our new admirers. The black mountain goat was joined by two companions, also black. They stood on the outcrop, unmoving except for their heads, which turned to follow our passage up the incline to our campsite. 
kind of unsettling. My companions did not respond. We emerged sweating from the ascent despite the cool temperatures. The clouds fragmented, allowing shafts of airy yellow sunlight through. My watch revealed that it was only 8 o'clock. Sunset would not come for a few more hours, and there would not be full darkness this night. Firewood? I'll go. Jess hurried away, the relic of a radio perched on her shoulder. I returned to the precipice overlooking our portion of the valley. A few thousand years ago, the trumpets of woolly mammoths would have broken the brittle silence. Perhaps in some isolated pocket, a small collection of the beasts survived. Unlikely, but I smiled to think of it. Jess dumped a few loads of wood and pine cones. Russell and Gabe used a flint kit to get a fire going. We sat on our backpacks and cooked our canned dinners over the fire, which popped and hissed, spitting scalding embers. I broke the silence. So, what did you guys think? It's beautiful. The radio was underneath her outstretched legs, the volume on the lowest setting. Every now and then, I heard the faintest tinkling of calliope music. Russell and Gabe nodded in agreement. I mean, I kind of feel like something is happening. Something strange. My mind was fuzzy at times down there. Thought I heard some things too. Russell slurped down a mouthful of beans and scratched at his hidden ears. Yeah, I heard something driving me nuts down there. Almost like the sound was coming from inside my head. You guys really think there's bad shit in the water? For a while, everything felt normal. We chatted for an hour, rebuilding the fire as the kindling dwindled. The physical toll of hiking and slogging through mud superseded our desire to commiserate about our experiences. We retired to our tents, Gabe and I sharing one, and Russell and Jess in the other. I don't know if I ever slept or simply drifted in and out of awareness of my consciousness. The sun kissed the horizon after midnight, and the world was twilight for a few hours. All was still, except for the fizzle and pop of the radio, the muted sound of calliope music. I roused groggily, scraping grit from my eyes. Gabe wasn't in the tent, though I didn't recall hearing him depart. I stretched and crawled toward the tent's opening. Gabe's back was to me, and he was bent over at the waist. You okay, Gabe? He looked over his shoulder his eyes terrified and dancing in their sockets. Gabe? He smiled and blood cascaded from his mouth, running through the coarse hair of his beard. What's going on, Gabe? I took a few hesitant steps toward him, my heart rate increasing. Thin ribbons of steam rose from a puddle of gore on the grass. 
He attempted to speak, but choked on his own blood. Gabe spat a fresh clot atop the puddle and wiped his lips. Parasites, man. From the water. I knew they got in. I could feel them all day yesterday. Little worms like spaghetti noodles crawling through my gums. He spat again and smiled. His gums were crisscrossed with slashes, patches of bone visible near his canines. I noticed the pocket knife in his left hand, a globule of blood trembling on its tip. It's all good now. I got rid of him. He gestured to the puddle. I nodded and inspected this handiwork. I don't see anything there, Gabe. Yeah, they went back into the ground. Squiggly little fuckers. <sighs> Russell and Jess emerged from their tent. Neither appeared as though sleep had visited them. Russell shivered beneath a fleece blanket. His ears were still covered by both his beanie and earmuffs. Jess held the radio in front of her body, twirling it unconsciously. The battery compartment was open. There were no batteries. Guys, what's happening to us? What do you mean? You just cut your fucking gums open because you thought there were parasites inside of you. Jess is holding a radio with no batteries. It's playing carnival music. I faced Russell. And at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd cut your ears off. He frowned, but broke eye contact. Well? Russell hesitated, then lifted his beanie, which caused his earmuffs to fall. His ears were intact, though not unblemished. Scabs of black blood adorned his earlobes like bloated ticks. Jess hid the radio behind her back. What about you? I stammered, feeling the weight of my friend's eyes. If the valley was responsible for their actions, the same was true for me. No point in disguising the truth. Someone or something is talking to me. Inside my head. Directing me somewhere. The voice says it'll lead me to the answers to all my questions. About the valley, or...? I shrugged my shoulders. Before we could further explore the matter, Jess gestured with her radio at something in the distance. Is that smoke? We shuffled on timid feet toward the edge. The outcrop of rock that formerly hosted one, and then three black goats, was now occupied by a man. He stood when he noticed us waved. The smoke was from the meager fire he'd built. We were too stunned to speak. We were supposed to be alone. Either one of Pilot Bob's competitors secretly flew the man into the remote part of the valley, or the man had walked there. If he had walked, he had done so through hundreds of miles of wilderness, an easy target for anything with four legs and sharp teeth.
Gabe spat more blood from his ruined gums. The fuck is happening to us? He introduced himself as Sam, smiling broadly and pushing aside our outstretched hands so that he could embrace us. The stench of his body was like sulfur or milk left in the sun. Sam informed us that he was entering his third week in Nahani, though skillfully adverted questions as to how he came there. Uh, it's not important. Sam stood a few inches shorter than Russell. His clothes, a red plaid button-up, and flared jeans hung loosely over his light frame. Perhaps he'd lost weight during his time in the valley, but I didn't think so. Despite his thin body, his face was cherub-like, with only a hint of stubble and patches on his cheeks. He was never not smiling. What are you doing out here? Oh, I imagine same as you. See if the legends were true. And if they were, to find the source. And the source of what? Why, of the mystery. And what beheaded the natives and prospectors. The UFOs, the Bigfoot giants, all of it. Did you find it? Oh, yes. Ah. <laughs> oh, yes, I found it. I shared a glance with Jess, who shrugged but seemed intrigued. You're right. Gabe's fingertips traced the skin of his cheeks. Sam placed his hand on the back of my neck and squeezed briefly. I can take you there. We asked for a few moments to discuss the prospect, and Sam obliged, sauntering to the precipice with his hands on his hips. I don't like this. Look at him. Where did he come from? Where, where's his gear? Russell held his hands over his ears again. I realized then that Sam had only a simple backpack, certainly not large enough to contain a tent. How had he survived three weeks in the wilderness? Had he slept outdoors and forged for his food? Nothing from his out-of-style jeans to his lack of survival gear suggested he had been in the valley for three weeks. It's pretty weird. What are we doing out here, then? Isn't this why we came? Strange guy shows up out of fucking nowhere, in the middle of fucking nowhere, and tells us he can show us the source of everything. I found it difficult to maintain eye contact with her. None of the men spoke. She began to walk away. I'll go alone, then. No, Jess, I'll go. We'll go. I nodded to Russell and Gabe. We all followed her back to Sam. Sam assured us that we would be back before night, or what passed for night in the valley. We packed a light lunch and a few snacks, but left most of our gear with the tents and hung our food from a branch of a nearby tree in case a bear wandered through our camp during our absence. Our journey began. Sam led the way, his persistent mirth showing no sign of abating. An endless torrent of words spilled from his mouth. 
I was often two or three sentences behind and attempting to catch up. He recounted the wondrous things he saw in the valley. None of it was particularly believable, but it was fascinating to listen to. There is a cavern about half a day's walk from here. The deeper you go, the warmer it gets. I'll tell you, I was just about naked after about an hour. And there was some light in the cavern. You know, it was never dark. There were plants in there. Ferns and miniature palm trees. There were citrus trees, too. The fruit was like nothing I'd ever had. It's so, so sweet. I never found the source of the light, though. I, I heard roar from deeper in the cavern that sent me running the other direction. And picking up my cast-off clothes as I went. Sam practically danced over the terrain as we slipped and stumbled. My lungs were desperate for oxygen, and I soon found myself disoriented. I had no idea where we were in relation to our camp. We trekked through copses of trees, disturbing birds of prey into flight. We crossed over streams, hopping on river rocks to stay dry. Although my head was mostly down, fixated on the few square feet in front of me, I realized we were trampling over our own boot prints at points. I chased after Sam's voice as he continued his stories, pulling Gabe along with me. I lost track of time, lulled into a watery fugue, propelled forward like a rat pursuing the Pied Piper. His words washed over me like waves of sand, filling my ears until I heard nothing else. There were other things I should have noticed but didn't at the time. Amid the grass and flame-colored wildflowers was the flotsam and jetsam of prior explorers. There were leather shoes of indeterminate vintage, a lantern, spools of wire, and other assorted materials. I had no time to consider the objects or the people that had left them. You're so close now, Derek. I did not know if it was Sam speaking or the voice inside my head. It was Russell who pulled me out of my stupor. Wait, you guys? We were in a meadow. I had no idea how long we had been walking. My legs ached and my clothes were soaked with sweat. Sam stopped as well, his face betraying annoyance for the briefest of moments. What is it? Where the fuck is the sun? We craned our necks skyward and searched. There were no clouds. All was blue, infinite, and uniform. It's daylight. Where the fuck is the sun? Jess lowered the radio, which had been perched next to her ear. Gabe inspected his fingernails. There were bloody claw marks on his cheeks and forehead. He grimaced and began to scratch the skin again. Where is the sun? Sam trotted back to the group. I'd been staring at the back of his head for I didn't know how long. The man that stood before me was not the man that had introduced himself to us that morning. His face was drawn and gaunt, jaundiced yellow in color. 
He smiled and displayed crowded teeth the color of old ivory. He appeared to have aged 30 years. Oh, you're really in the valley now. He walked away, his arms hanging loosely at his sides. I assessed the group. Gabe fingered the open wounds in his mouth, just nodded as the radio broadcast something only she could hear. Russell once again wore his dual layer of ear covering, but seemed the most present. Russ, what do we do, man? We watched Sam's form diminish as he trudged up an incline leading toward an earthen ridge. His pace was slow, but deliberate. There was no sun above, yet there was daylight. I inspected the meadow and found strange trees mixed in with the expected foliage. They were tall and thin with broad leaves. There were insect noises as well, sounds I wouldn't expect to hear so near the Arctic Circle, buzzing and whirring like cicadas back home. I shrugged out of my flannel shirt and tied it around my waist. Over the course of our journey, we'd encountered alternating pockets of cool and warm air. The warmth appeared to have worn out. Russell removed his beanie and twisted it. Sweat dappled the ground at his feet. He sighed as if to steady himself, and then removed the earmuffs as well. They don't help. I can hear it all the time. And it's not a drone anymore. It's a voice, or several voices. It's getting louder, which means we are getting closer. I don't think we really have a choice but to follow him now. We can't make it back to camp on our own, and we don't have enough food to sustain us for more than a few days if we ration. Whatever the fuck this is, man, we gotta see it to the end. Follow. Gabe grabbed me by the wrist and whispered through clenched teeth. They're in my skin, Derek. I don't know how much more I can take. It's driving me insane. Sam stood on the edge of the ridge and faced away from us. He pointed towards something beyond our sight. I found it difficult to make eye contact with Gabe. He was in near hysterics, blood streaming from a dozen self-inflicted wounds on his face. A flap of skin, the width of his ring finger rested on the bridge of his nose. I placed my hand on his shoulder in a supportive gesture and flinched. Something moved beneath my fingers. I retreated several steps, colliding with Jess, who seemed not to notice. She pressed the radio to her ear and nodded her head, mouthing words she did not actually speak. You felt it, didn't you? Before I could reply, the buzz of insects was temporarily halted as another much louder sound took its place. Through a childhood of watching nature documentaries, I never heard a similar bellow. It resembled both the curious cackle of the hyena and the jungle-clearing wail of a New World monkey. Its distance from us was impossible to guess. However, we did not consider the matter long. The initial call was echoed three times from different points in the meadow. We sprinted towards Sam, who was frozen in place at the top of the ridge, gesturing with a trembling finger. 
Gabe tripped over his feet and didn't seem to have either the strength or the will to regain his footing. Russell and I ducked beneath his arms and hoisted him off the ground. As we ran in short, fast steps, I felt writhing on the back of my neck where the skin of Gabe's arm was in direct contact with my own. He moaned, head lolling as pink spittle spilled from his mouth. Jess held the radio in her teeth as she clambered up the incline towards Sam. Russell and I arrived with Gabe a few moments later. I chanced to glance at the meadow and saw patterns carved in the tall grass, the paths of unseen creatures. They filled my ears with their maddening call, but refused to venture beyond the protection of the tall grass. In the shadows, I saw dozens of yellow eyes, glowing, unblinking. At once, the calls ceased and the eyes retreated. Russell paused to catch his breath. His eyes were frantic, like two little brown beetles trapped in a jar. I assumed he felt the same movement beneath his fingers. He nodded, and we resumed our ascent. We lowered Gabe to the ground when we reached Sam. Jess stood off to the side and stared in the direction Sam's slender finger indicated. From this vantage point, I could see for miles around, but it didn't hold my interest. I followed Jess's gaze and saw the entrance to a cave a hundred yards or so distant. Sam finally lowered his arm. He was another decade older at least. More than that, he appeared deflated of his prior mirth and vitality in general. His face sagged as if the fat and muscle had been siphoned away, leaving only the skin behind. He cupped his hands beneath his chin and spat. Not much time left for me here, I'm afraid. (laughs) He offered the contents of his hands. Three teeth rested atop a hillock of gore, a deep crimson, pulpy mass. He nodded toward the cave. I'll tell you what I can, but know that I can only guess at much of it. Don't waste your curiosity on the mundane details of who I am or how I came to be here. There are bigger mysteries than that. (laughs) We walked beside him. The movement beneath Gabe's skin became frenzied, almost as if the muscle itself was vibrating. Russell shook his head, and I saw that there were tears in his eyes. Jess walked with him almost ceremonial deliberation, like a bride approaching her groom. Shut up. I don't know if it is sentient, but it might be. I don't know if it has an agenda, but it might. I I don't know if it has a purpose greater than existing as it does. There is... There is some underlying logic to it, though I cannot say that it was designed as such. For for any one thing that enters one thing, the the exchange is not necessarily equal. Toss a grain of sand into it, 
and it may eject a boulder. Gabe writhed beneath my grasp and became increasingly difficult to hold. Most things that come out of it do not survive long. Those that do tend to stay nearby. Not all. Sasquatch? Sam looked over his shoulder and smiled, displaying loose and bloodied teeth. He stopped before the mouth of the cave. And here we are. (laughs) Russell dropped Gabe and pressed his palms to his ears. His eyes pleaded with me, but I had no window into his suffering. The cave was perhaps thirty feet tall and ovular in shape with a flattened base. It was impossible to surmise how deep the cave was because of what stood before us. It was like an upright shimmering pool of solid black water. It perfectly conformed to the walls of the cave and rippled ever so slightly, as if touched by a wind I did not feel. At the crest of each ripple, there was a brief glint of light, giving the impression of ten thousand stars winking in and out of existence all at once. I stood in this cave 1972. <laughs> I walked into that darkness, then it took me away to another place I do not have time to describe. <sighs> I suppose my ears have caught up to me. Sam looked down at the depleted skin on his arms. (laughs) I remember taking that step into the darkness, and then I was back in the valley on that outcrop of rock. The, The memories of what transpired between the day I walked into the void and this morning have come back to me in fragments as I came closer to this place. (laughs) He looked to me, his smile apologetic. I I was supposed to bring you here. It's, It's a thing you know and don't know all at once. Gabe sat up screaming. He ripped at his clothes tearing his shirt away from his body with a strength I could not imagine he possessed. He was rabid, spittle flying, eyes rolled back so that only the whites were visible. His flesh was alive with movement. Gabe, what's happening, man? His eyes found me for a second, and he just shook his head. He opened his mouth, but not to speak. He vomited a torrent of thin white worms that slapped the floor of the cave and slithered toward the black pool. Told you they were inside. His scream filled the cave as the white worms burrowed through soft spots of his flesh. His eyes quivered in their sockets, dancing from the motion of the worms within. 
They emerged from his eyes like snaking bean sprouts, leaving wet holes in the wake of their escape. He opened his mouth again as the worms broke free from his gums and coursed through his tongue, popping from the flesh and plummeting to the ground. Gabe stumbled forward toward the black pool with its infinite points of starlight. The thin worms shredded his insides in their maddened attempt to return to their point of origin, carving thousands of narrow canals through the gray matter of his brain. They erupted from his torso, and then his legs, and struggled to break free to be swallowed by the darkness before them. Gabe gurgled, the worms bursting through his throat, his body appearing as though it had been forced through a fine cheese grater. He stumbled over the trembling white mass and slid on puddles of his own blood. He hesitated before the black pool, and then took one step and was enveloped by it. He disappeared. I watched as a small rodent-like creature emerged from the black pool. It scurried toward the light at the mouth of the cave, but at once its scuttle slowed. It collapsed a few feet before us, its tiny chest heaving one final time. Although its body was very much that of a rat, its face was nearly human. It died gasping for air, its tiny pink tongue resting on the floor of the cave. Sorry, dear friend. I haven't been here too long. I must return. He ambled forward, arms outstretched to steady himself as he stepped over the oily carnage. Sam did not hesitate, but fell into the embrace of the black pool. A gray slug-like creature wiggled free from the darkness. It was the approximate length and width of a man. There were no distinguishing features other than its mouth, which gnashed at the air. Within its mouth were concentric rows of conical teeth that extended as far back into its throat as I could see. There was a motion within, as if each row of teeth rotated in the opposite direction of the row in front of it. It lumbered like an inchworm, its mouth sucking an atmosphere it did not recognize. As it neared the mouth of the cave, we moved to the side, though it seemed unable to sense us. Its motion slowed when it reached the grass. It lifted its head as if to survey the new land around it, then slumped in a wet heap. Its flesh began to bubble as the body reacted to the elements of the air. I turned to my friends and saw that Jess was no longer among us. She stood directly before the black pool. Six, six, four, seven, five... Jess? She looked over her shoulder at me, then back at the void. I did not, in that moment, see the face of my friend, the girl who was my first real crush. Her emerald eyes were unpolished stones, devoid of vitality. She returned her attention to the rippling mass before her. Six, six, four... Seven, five. Jess allowed the radio to fall from her grasp and it clattered to the ground. Jess, don't, I said, 
She stepped into the black pool, which thronged as it accepted her. At the moment of her vanishing, the radio metamorphosed into a bundle of sticks fastened together with twine. This creation was of the same dimensions as the radio, leading me to believe there had never been a radio at all. Russell was in the fetal position at the floor of the cave. He cradled his head and hummed in an attempt to drown out voices only he heard. I waited for the black pool to evict some new horror. The possibilities were limited only by the evolutionary constraints of a particular plane of existence. Perhaps the black pool was just a mile marker along the highway of the universe. Perhaps it was the highway itself. I clenched my hands into fists and crouched into a ready stance. I knew I couldn't carry Russell, would have to leave him behind. Something stepped out of the black pool, a presence I felt but did not see. I sensed it as a slight disturbance of the air, a shift in atmospheric pressure. It glided over the pink slime with its sinuous mass of worms and stopped before me. Unseen tendrils slipped through the creases of my brain. It dissected my memories, my fears, and my hopes. It sought to understand me, and by extension, humanity. Amused or entertained by what it gleaned, it recalled its tendrils and glided toward the dusky light. My senses reported none of this information, yet I knew it all to be true. The bundle of sticks was reformed as a radio once again, a more modern version than the one Jess found the day previous. I abandoned my consideration of the life form that dismantled and reassembled my consciousness in a matter of seconds. The radio was about two feet away from the black pool, much closer than was comfortable for me. I kept a wary eye on the rippling void as I retrieved it. I cried out as something gripped my shoulders from behind. The radio tumbled from my grasp and crashed to the ground. It knows, Derek. It knows what I did. It knows what I did, man. His grip tightened on my shoulders, vice-like, as I attempted to face him. <clears throat> <clears throat> You would never allow me to do what I need to do. I'm sorry, Derek. I love you, man. I did not feel the impact. My world went dark. The air was cool on my skin. My eyelids fluttered open, and for one blissful moment... I did not recall the events of the previous hours. I lifted my head, 
which required some effort, and saw that Russell's backpack had served as my pillow during my forced slumber. The memory came back in a rush, and I sat up. I was about halfway between the black pool and the mouth of the cave. It was nearly full dark now, which I knew was impossible at this time of the year. Russell? There was a dull throb on the left side of my occipital bone. I touched it with my fingers and found a small lump. Russell? I looked to the black pool and strained to recall the words Russell spoke before he struck me. Something about it knowing what he did. In the fading light, I saw Russell stagger forward a step, his body shuffling on loose limbs, as if controlled by an amateur puppeteer. After two steps, he slumped to his knees. An arterial spray of blood spurted from the ragged stump of his neck and painted the wall of the cave. Of the horrors I witnessed that day, this was the sight that truly corroded my spirit. His body slumped to the side, the blood gurgling in a steady stream. I crawled to within a few feet of him, my mind devoid of thought. If not for the carnage of his ruined neck, he could have been napping. Swaying at the mouth of the cave was a crudely fashioned noose. Russell was behind me for most of the day's journey through the valley. He must have collected the wire we passed, perhaps anticipating its future use. A few feet beyond the entrance to the cave, his head stared into the black distance. I stepped over Russell's body to inspect his handiwork. The wire was secured to a rocky nodule at the top of the mouth of the cave. In order to generate the momentum necessary to sever his head, he must have leaped from that point with the noose fashioned around his neck. He was a gentle boy, a quiet and good-natured teenager and had been as dependable a man as I had ever known. Whatever betrayal he buried in his past, he did not deserve this end. To die in isolation. To die with sorrow in his heart. Strange constellations winked above me. Planets that did not belong in our solar system were faintly visible. A sea-green gas giant rested between two bright stars, one red and one white. Other lights streaked across the sky, tearing through the inky canopy. In the valley, the nocturnal beasts began to chatter. The distant yowl of the yellow-eyed creatures was consumed by the resounding roar of something much larger and much closer to me. I shivered, my breath issuing in misty clouds that quickly dissipated. I returned to the cave and had no choice but to walk through Russell's blood, which continued to spread across the floor. Nietzsche said, And if thou gaze into the abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. The intent behind his words didn't conform to my situation, yet I did believe the abyss gazed into me. Its eyes were ageless, its ambitions 
unknowable. The cacophony outside was rabid, a frenzied chorus of hunger and anguish. A sound emerged above the others as it projected into the cave. I looked over my shoulder and saw a black silhouette of a bipedal figure that was likely twice my height. I discerned none of its features beyond its basic shape. It crouched over Russell's body, prodded and sniffed at it, chirping and clicking. I do not know if it was aware of my presence or if it would have considered me prey. It scooped Russell's body up and hoisted it over its shoulder, sent a few chirps and clicks into the cave, and then walked away. I faced the black pool. I gazed into the abyss. I touched it with my fingertips. Ripples spread from the point of contact. Behind me was a world I did not recognize. I could likely survive on my rations for a few days. I could wait for daylight, hope that daylight would come again, and possibly retrace my steps. But I didn't think so. I had scrutinized the map of the valley for years, had scoured the satellite imagery for some anomaly, something that would explain the mystery. I don't believe I was on the map any longer. I was in the overlap, where the fringes of another reality bled into the fringes of ours. I allowed the black water to envelop my hand. Before I could remove it, another hand grasped mine and pulled. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.